Good evening. How are you tonight? That was pretty weak. How are you tonight? Great. Well, thank you for coming. I'm Jose Antonio Bowen. Uh, I'm the president at Goucher College. I'm very pleased to welcome you tonight to tonight's lecture by Dr. Mary Helen um, Imordino Yang, who is a neuroscientist and human development psychologist at the University of Southern California. I'd like to start by uh, thanking the Meyerhoffs, who couldn't be with us this evening, but I still want to let you know um, that tonight's event is funded by the Jane and Robert Meyerhoff Visiting Professorship for Distinguished Scholars, Teachers, and Practitioners. Um, we've had lots of great people coming uh, to Goucher, uh, thanks to the Meyerhoffs, so we thank them in absentia for their support uh, of Goucher and all these events. So let's give them a hand, even though they're not here. This event is also part of a series, as you know, this is our spring 2017 themed semester series, uh, the science, ethics, and practice of mindfulness. So everyone in our community hopefully knows and has heard about the theme. Um, so there are seminars, there are courses, um, there's yoga, there's various lectures, there's all sorts of different kinds of activity uh, happening this semester. And we also, this is the first of, a, of four uh, big public speakers. Um, the next will be uh, Omid Safi, who's the editor of Progressive Muslims on Justice, Gender, and Pluralism, and the director of the Duke Islamic Studies Center. Um, he'll be here on February 23rd. Then on March 30th, Alisa Garza, social activist, co-creator of Black Lives Matter, um, will be here on campus March 30th. Uh, and then finally, Dan Siegel, um, the best-selling author from UCLA School of Medicine, will be here in April. So I hope you'll come back to one of those events. So I will introduce our speaker. Uh, she's going to speak for a while, uh, and then at the end we'll take some questions. I will uh, pass the microphone, um, so if we'll, we'll line up over here and I ask, um, we give students first priority, um, but students, I ask you to uh, state questions uh, clearly and succinctly and try to have a question. Um, all right, so a few um, words about our featured speaker, Dr. Mary Helen Imordino-Yang. She's a former public junior high school science teacher she earned her doctorate at Harvard University, then completed her postdoctoral training in 2008. As an effective neuroscientist and human developmental psychologist, her studies underscore the interdependence of emotion and cognition and the necessity of understanding oneself to achieve academic excellence. She's an associate professor of education at the Rossier School of Education and an associate professor of psychology at the Brain and Creativity Institute and a member of the Neuroscience Graduate Program faculty at the University of Southern California. She's the author of the recent book, Emotion, Learning, and the Brain, Exploring the Educational Implications of Effective Neuroscience. Imordino Yang is also associate editor for the award-winning journal Mind, Brain, and Education and for the new journal Era Open. Among her many, many leadership positions, she was elected to the governing board of the International Mind, Brain, and Education Society. In 2012, she launched a five-year collaborative research project supported by the National Science Foundation investigating psychosocial and neurobiological aspects of emotional development in adolescence. She's also the content director for a free online course for teachers on learning in the brain funded by the Annenberg Media Foundation. 
Among her many honors and awards, she's been named a rising star by the Association for Psychological Science, and most recently was a Federation of Associations in Behavioral and Brain Sciences Early Career Impact Award winner. Please help me welcome Dr. Mary Helen Imordino Yang. There you are. Good luck. Oh, hello, everybody. Thank you for having me. Thank you for the wonderful introduction. Um, you know, one of the most fun things that I can do in my work, I think, is to periodically get outside of my lab and talk to audiences like you who are actually learning in the world and who some of you are preparing to be teachers as well, right, who are changing the learning environments for other people. And the reason I'm so excited to do that is because from my perspective, the reason I do this neuroscience, which is you know, pretty labor intensive, is actually to try to help society. It's to try to help to understand better what it is that makes us feel like ourselves, if you know what I mean. That sense that you know, I can't prove it, but I sure feel like I'm real, you know? And like if you pinched me, it would hurt. And, and like if you thought my talk was stupid, it would also hurt, right? Wait, where, where does that come from? And what's the role of disciplinary knowledge and skills and academic skills in particular in building the ability to have that kind of a sense? And what is the ultimate aim of education? How do we build citizens of the world who can be ethical and innovative thinkers, who can use information in ways that are actually going to improve uh, the situations around them in innovative and creative and ethical ways? And what's, in particular, the guiding role of emotionality and relationships in that. And, and so to start, I'm going to unpack the title a little bit, Embodied Brains, Social Minds, and Cultural Meaning. And because this title that I chose gives away the framework or the logic of how I think about the nature of the human mind. And that is that, if you think about it, the ultimate or original purpose of our brain and of any creature's brain is to keep its body alive. The reason we have a brain or a central nervous system at all, or the reason that a worm does for that matter, is to make it manage its behavior as an organism so that it eats what it's supposed to, so that it stays in situations that are conducive to its physical survival, so that it manages its physiology adaptively. And the more and more complex that nervous system becomes, and the more computational power it evolves over time, it turns out the more we become, as creatures, interdependent on one another. So our embodied brain, the brain that is there to keep us alive, actually becomes an organ that also supports keeping us alive, not just physically now, but socially. And this is how we get to the next level. And it was thought, for example, in the 1960s, uh, a, a famous neuroscientist named Paul McLean uh, put out a theory called the triune brain theory, if you've heard of it, right? Where, where we thought that there was you know, a kind of core system to the brain, a brain stem, which I'll show you in a little bit, a brain stem that we sort of share with alligators, right? That's deep down inside the middle of our head or in the middle of theirs, that keeps us alive, that manages our physiological homeostasis, right? Our ability to manage our bodies uh, so that we, so that we you know, breathe and so that we eat and we do all the things, we stay the right temperature and all these things we have to do to be able to literally physically live. And then he thought that the way the brain looked to him 
evolution had kind of layered on these hats, he called them. They looked almost like hats to him, where you have a stem underneath that's keeping you alive and managing your physiology. And on top of that comes emotion and affect. And on top of that comes all the cerebral cortex up at the top that allows us to think about things complexly. And he saw those as kind of layered and fundamentally separate from one another. And what we're learning now from the new field of social and effective neuroscience, which has only really been around in earnest for about 15 years, is that that's really not the way to think about the human mind or the human brain. In fact, what we've got is not a kind of layering that's separate, but the very fundamental, evolutionarily old systems that we share with alligators become the substrate for among our most complex human endeavors and thinking, our abilities to admire the virtue of another person, for example, our ability to feel awe at a beautiful mathematical equation, if you're a mathematician, right? This is work done by Samir Zeki that showed that. That these very low-level brainstem systems whose original evolutionary purpose is to sustain your physical survival are being co-opted and reorganized as a substrate for even our most complex mental functions. Those are not the systems, those low-level systems are not the ones that are doing the computations, but instead they're the ones that are sort of playing out the implications of the complications. And the reason why we care so much about ideas, the reason why we can dedicate our lives to being a neuroscientist or a professor or a, or a literary scholar is because, in fact, our ability to think deeply about information is hooking itself into basic survival-related mechanisms that are originally evolved to keep us alive. That's why we care so much. That's why human beings can kill each other over ideas and values, as the world is painfully showing us these days. And what I'm gonna argue then is that our social mind, our ability to build a social frame of reference, our ability to make social judgments and understandings out of the things that happen to us, out of the things we think, then becomes the fodder for what I will call cultural meaning making or cultural interpretation. And the cumulative experiences we've had over the course of our lifetime, given our biological propensities, build us the ability, sort of support or undergird the ability to have what I would call conscious experiences of information, of knowledge states. And that is, in essence, what college educations are there to do. You're systematically exposing people to skillful and beautiful ways of thinking about information so that they can appreciate the depth and the usefulness of it over time. Usefulness either in an immediate physical way or usefulness in the sense of innovating in society to solve problems or usefulness in the sense of providing a new um, forum or idea space for explaining how it feels to be a human being in the case of the arts and literature. And I'll show you what I mean as we go through uh, the talk and I show you my data to kind of start to lay these ideas out, I, I, I'm putting up a painting by a friend of mine, Margaret Lazari, um, who's the chair of the fine arts department at, uh, at USC, where I am, and, and also a good, a good friend. And if you look at this painting, in real life, this is like a gigantic, bright, vibrant watercolor seascape. And in the middle, she's got these kind of white, floating, wrinkly things, which I kind of think look like waves. My daughter thinks they look like you know, reflections of clouds. 
What they actually are is a picture of Margaret's brain. Right? She allowed us to take pictures of her brain in our MRI scanner. And then what we did was we peeled off the outside of her cortex all the little cells, the little neurons that do the firing and the thinking that we're so enamored of having so many more of than other creatures, right? We, we peeled those off the picture, not off of Margaret, okay? Um, and I just, I just want to be sure you're clear on that. Um, and then what's left underneath those cells is the most amazingly complex network of microscopic little tubes of salt water that are connecting those neurons to one another in organized patterns that span the space of the head and all the way down into the body. And the nature of those networks is just now being discovered. We're just now, in the last few years, actively investigating how it is that these systems for communicating across cells are organized by our experiences and by our thoughts and by our evolutionary and genetic histories. And understanding the ways in which these systems for communicating around the brain so that you build a coherent organ that's able to be the substrate of a person's mind, right, of me, we're just now beginning to appreciate how it is that that might happen. And some of our data actually speak to I think the role of education and of habitual ways of making meaning and of thinking about information in organizing these networks advantageously in order to build a sense of reflectiveness and ethics and a sort of purposefulness within a person, which is a major theme of tonight's talk. So, you know, what's that a picture of? It's not me. I never put pictures of myself in my talks. <laughs> it's my sister <laughs> um, and my little niece. Thank you. Turn the lights off. My little niece, Nina. And, and I put this picture in here to sort of demonstrate how human beings begin this journey of learning, right? this journey of development. And this is actually a picture of my sister and my little niece, Nina. Nina was. Uh, born, the, she was the uh, smaller of a pair of twins, and she was born in an emergency C-section. So both my sister and Nina and her little sister Avalon were all asleep during the time of their birth. And this is the first time that my sister and Nina have met each other when they're both awake. And there are many ways that you can talk about this photograph in terms of the starting point for human learning. But what I want to point out to you here is what Nina brings to the situation. You know, I once heard a very preeminent neurophilosopher, whose work I very much respect, but I think she was wrong about this, um, talk about human infants as sausages, right? She was just making a joke about how they're, you know, kind of pink and squishy and did stuff. And I, and I get that, right? But, you know, to me, the major difference, and don't quote me on saying this, all right, but. You, you're, you'll get it. The major difference between a human being and a sausage, okay, is that human infants are not passive. You take a sausage and you put it on a plate and it stays there. It just lays there, right? And anybody who's ever been a parent knows that babies don't do that. They demand from you, in normal health, they demand from you what they need to develop. And they come to the world with what I would call a set of biological primitives for engaging 
with the world. In this case, Nina's really demonstrating one biological primitive that's been, that's been well studied neurologically, which is that infants are born, not just human infants, but, but, but other uh, animals, babies too, are born with a kind of uh, uh, innate reflex built into their visual system to stare at two dark dots like this, right? Human infants, well, you can't trick them with three, not flashing, not too far apart, not moving, right? That two, just like that, right? And then along comes that infant's mother, who's supporting everything else about that baby's posture at this moment, right? And also choosing an, a sort of opportune time to engage. Like, Nina's not hungry, she doesn't have a dirty diaper, she's not cold, she's not asleep, right? So we're organizing the context as an educator or as a more developed person, so that Nina, and you know, holding her little posture, because she can only do one thing at a time at this point, right? so that Nina can gaze into her mother's eyes. And it's as if her mother's saying to her, listen, baby, you bring to this world a biological, innate, built-in reflex to stare at two dark dots. Let me show you what we can use that for. Let me help you draw that out and develop that into a skill that's gonna be your entree into human relationships for the space of your lifetime. And I like to think about all human learning that way. For those of you who are in education, this is especially relevant. That we come to the world and our students come to the world with biological propensities to engage in particular ways. And our job as educators and as parents and really as communities in science and, 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 um, and parents and teachers is to pull that out of the person, to show them what it's for, to teach them what it's capable of. And what that means is that the very most essential aspects, even the very most basic aspects of our mental development are built within cultural frames of reference. They're built from the information we glean within cultural context and from social relationships and from information that's culturally constructed. Even things like as primal as looking into another person's eyes is highly culturally shaped. If you've ever been to, a, and I know that at Goucher people go abroad, right, I heard, which is fantastic. If you've ever been to another culture where the norms for eye gaze duration and sort of space are just the teeniest bit different, you know it immediately when you go into a, a, a group of people, right? If someone's looking at you just a little too long, you immediately know it. Those things are tuned, exquisitely tuned, by habitual relationships within your own culture. And yet, they're highly biologically primitive as starting points, and all human cultures have them embedded into social relationships. They're just shaped and guided and organized somewhat differently. And that's the way to think about all of brain development. We're showing in some of my studies now, and in other people's too, that the way in which people's experiences of the world, of the social world, are felt by them, the way in which they come to be consciously aware of the things that happen to them. Not just sort of what happens to them in an objective way, but in a subjective, deeply personal way. The way I feel about what's happened, the way I make meaning out of what's happened to me, is literally shaped by your cultural frames of reference and by the kinds of experiences you've had. For example, we've done studies now in China, at Beijing Normal University, and at USC in Los Angeles, looking at the ways in which brain activity corresponds to emotional experience and showing these very striking, very interesting differences that are shaped by cultural frames. Okay. 
So the, the, the underlying theme is that emotions are automatic reactions to situations. You don't have to sort of tell your heartbeat, speed up, okay, breathing, slow down, blood pressure, you're gonna to need to even out a little bit here, we're going into a sad situation, right? You, you're, that's all happening for you by virtue of very low level, deep, deep structures in your brain and brainstem. And yet I would argue that ultimately the real purpose of education and of development is to learn how to feel these emotions. In other words, to learn how to have conscious mind states about the things that happen and the things that exist in the world. And they can be things in physics, they can be things in math, they can be things in the social world, they can be things in literature or art. But what makes human beings human is our ability to experience the meaning that undergirds the things that happen, not just to experience what happens in a more direct way and just have, sort of have it happen to you and sort of react and learn in a basic sense how to avoid or, or approach certain kinds of situations. We do that for sure also, but what makes humans special and the real purpose for education in humans is to help people build complex understandings out of those things that happen, out of the things that they quote unquote learn. And that's what makes us different. And out of that comes our sense of ethics, it comes our morality, it comes our sense of culture and relationships, our sense of beauty and awe. All of these things that are really uniquely human in their full form are derived, I would argue, from that meaning-making process. And it's that process that I'm most interested in studying in my own experiments. So for, especially for those of you in education, I, I put this little poem, it's actually a song by a little girl in kindergarten. I don't try to read it, I'll, I'll read it for you in a minute, okay? Um, but I, it's just here to sort of demonstrate a point. So this is a, a picture of her, it's in crayon, I tried my best to scan it, okay? In her little pink dress, and then she's got her music stand there and she's singing. She's singing to her baby brother, whose name is Theodore, they call him Teddy, and she says, I won't sing, I'll just read, okay? So forgive me. Um, oh, Teddy, we love you more than the whole earth size. As the earth spins every day, we love you as much as usual. But sometimes, even more, as you make us proud and happy that you're you. <laughs> oh, it's so cute, right? But I have a simple question for you. Is this a song about this little girl's love for her baby brother? Or is this a song about her budding knowledge of planetary science? <laughs> right? Our knowledge is built in cultural frames for having relationships. That's basically why I would argue we can be interested in things. We can fall in love with physics or with psychology or whatever it is you love to think about. And over time, those disciplinary skills for thinking about that information become relatively divorced from skills for thinking about relationships in the, in the proper sense, the way that we usually mean it when we talk about managing social relationships. But what we're showing is that that subjective sense of purposefulness within a domain of knowledge, that sense of achievement and purposefulness within a, a, a frame of reference that helps us to understand and study the world somehow, be it in art, be it in science, be it in math, whatever it is, is literally co-opting and reorganizing systems that are originally evolved to maintain social relationships and to feel emotions. And this isn't just true, like I said, it isn't just true about, you know, sort of the social world and how we interact with one another. I mean, uh, there's now a, 
many studies that are showing, we have one with physicists, a guy named Samir Zeki in, in Cambridge in England has a really lovely study with mathematicians where he uh, uh, asked them to look at a whole list of equations, some of which are quote unquote beautiful equations and some are ugly equations or awkward equations and, and apparently mathematicians know exactly what you mean when you tell them that and you ask them to judge each equation according to its beauty and they pick out the ones that they found most beautiful and then he put them in the MRI scanner and asked them to watch those, those equations again and to think about each one and lo and behold when they're thinking about the equations that are beautiful because they're elegant, because they're powerful, because they're simple but they have the power to explain broad phenomenon in the universe, like E equals MC squared, right? Very simple little equation, extraordinarily elegantly predicts many, many things. That's an example of a beautiful equation. What happens is they get many of the same neural activations in these survival-related systems that people show when they're appreciating a beautiful painting, or that my participants show when they're feeling awe or inspiration according with another person's virtuous accomplishments. So I'm going to kind of ask you to come with me for a moment while I tell you a story. This is a true story. It's a story about this woman in the blue dress who I actually knew. And if you can see, she's holding up a book that has pictures of pregnant uh, women, like diagrams showing about pregnancy. And she's teaching these women here. And she's in a very arid place. She's actually in Sudan. And this woman's story is that when she was a little child, she, her family were nomadic goat herders in rural Sudan, which is an incredibly arid place where people live very, very spread out from one another. And so she and her family traveled with their goats through the landscape, and sometimes they would cross paths with other family groups. And what this meant for her as a child is that she grew up in a culture that was not literate. She never had the opportunity to go to school, though she was learning many things about you know, her lifestyle, of course. It also meant that she had almost no access to medical care. There was something like one physician for 16,000 people in Sudan in the time when she was growing up. And that person was almost never near enough by to you so that you could reach them when you needed them. And what it meant for her personally is that when she was 13 years old, she found herself alone with her mother when her mother went into labor with her baby sister. And she basically stood by and watched and comforted her mother as both her mother and her sister died in front of her. And she had no ability to do anything about it. She couldn't read information to know what to do. She couldn't get a doctor to help. And as she began to make meaning of that situation over time, she decided that she wanted to be a doctor. She wanted to help end that kind of suffering in her country for other people but she'd never even been to elementary school. And then two years later, when she was 15, she heard of a family from Cambridge, England. The mother was a, was a sociologist, and the dad was a professor of anthropology. And they had come with their two school-age girls to Sudan to do uh, field work for two years. And she basically walked to them and, and said, as they say in Africa, I want to I be your house girl. Right? I want to cook for you and clean for you and take care of your family and feed you and everything during this time that you're here. So they hired her on. And every day as those two little girls would sit down with their British school books to do their work, she would sit with them and ask them to explain to her what they were learning. 
both as a way for them to understand it better and as a way for them to teach her. And over the course of those two years, those two little girls taught her how to read. They taught her the basics of how to do math. And when the family was due to return back to England, they were so taken with her that they offered to support her if she wanted to come back with them in the service of pursuing her own education. And so she did. To make a long story short, she left Sudan. She left her family. She left everything that she knew and went to this strange, rainy, cold place where a lot of people look really pale and weird, right? And, and in the service of studying things so that she could become a, a doctor. And over the course of the next few years, she did her, uh, her elementary and secondary degrees in adult education programs. She went on to university, eventually to medical school, and then be, finally became a fully trained and certified obstetrician gynecologist in Europe. And at that point, she could have very easily stayed in Europe and led a very affluent life and still supported the cause of her native Sudan, but she didn't. She returned to Sudan where she now operates out of a truck, basically, a mobile health clinic for women in the most remote regions of Sudan, where she travels into the most remote arid regions and teaches women about how to care for themselves and their, uh, and their uh, kinfolk during uh, pregnancy and childbirth and the postnatal period. So I just ask you a simple question. How does this person's story make you feel? And you can answer. People can put their hands up or just shout. Awe. Awe. What, what do you mean when you say awe? Almost unbelievable and wonderful at the same time. Mm hmm. What else? Inspired. inspired? Who said inspired? You said inspired. What, what do you mean when you say inspired? So so basically what you said for other people who couldn't hear is that she's inspired because if someone could go and change the lives of other people, then under these circumstances, right, then anybody really could go for it and do that. Is that what you said, basically? Yeah? It seems to me that her early experience is really impacting her in terms of self. Mm-hmm. It's the motivation for her to pursue what it was she wanted to do. Mm-hmm. 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 So her intrinsic self was changed and motivated by the experiences that she had. Mm-hmm. Anybody else? We're all good. So, so basically, I'm going to kind of take off my you know storytelling hat and put on my scientist hat and tell you that hers is one of the true stories that I compiled and composed in order to induce what we called inspiration or admiration for virtue in participants in our studies so that we could study the neural correlates of that kind of inspired state, which had never been done before. We wanted to know how is it that people can experience emotions that feel deeply motivating and deeply moving. They kind of make you realize the possibility space for, the, for, for actions, right? They, they kind of take you out of the here and now and make you think about what could be and we wanted to understand how it is that a brain whose job is to manage a body could support that kind of feeling state over time. Because in essence, that's the holy grail of education. 
I mean, that's what we're aiming for. People who are capable of feeling inspired and acting on that inspiration. Think for a moment about the amount of knowledge and the amount of experience in the world you have to have to be able to fully appreciate her story and feel inspired. I didn't tell you she was inspirational. I just told you a little bit about what she accomplished and under what circumstances, and you built that into the meaning that she's, that she's amazing and exceptional and that this is very inspirational because it sort of changes the frame of reference for my own self. It makes me realize what, what is possible or what I could do with my world. And, and nobody here said, although 15 and 16 year olds often do say this to me in interviews about these stories, you know, no one said they wanted to go to Sudan and like help her drive her truck, right? Instead, what you realize is what we call abstract thinking, right, at the college level. What you realize is that your understanding has transcended the specifics of this woman's situation. It's not about her specifically, it's about what's possible. And it's about the lesson we learn from learning about what other people have accomplished and what that means for our understanding of what is possible as a human being what's virtuous as a human being, so that we can try to live up to that. Does that make sense? Yes? Okay, yes. I can't hear you, you have to say a little louder. I said tragedy shaped her destiny. Yes, tragedy shaped her destiny, right? But it's her who really shaped her destiny, right? It's the meaning she made out of that tragic experience that caused her to accomplish great things. Yeah, or it was there and she overcame it. I'd have to ask her, but yes. This is Nina's older brother, <laughs> Gilbert, my little nephew, right? And so, you know, what we are learning from the neural correlates of that kind of experience, when we put people in the scanner and tell them stories like the woman of the blue dress and ask them how they feel, right, is that feeling emotions even for very complex situations like abstract inferences about another person's mental qualities and capacities still involve the neural systems that are there to keep you alive. The reason I would argue that such stories are inspirational, that make us motivated, that make us want to do things with our lives, want to make us feel you know, purposeful like that is because they're literally hooking themselves into survival-related mechanisms that are there to make you act in the most basic sense. So this is a picture of a brain from one of our participants, right? This is one of our participants' brains, and I'm gonna take the data from the first study that we did that came out in, in PNAS in 2009 on inspiration and admiration for virtue and compassion. And it turns out that those two emotions, complex compassion and inspiration or admiration for virtue, actually at this level are recruiting the same neural systems. They're recruiting them in slightly different ways, we now know, but the activations are involving the same brain systems. And 
So I want to point out to you a couple of places where we had hypothesized there would be activation. And the first one I've already sort of told you about. So this is a picture of someone's head right, facing this way. And it's kind of sliced through this way. Again, we, we slice through the picture, not the person. <laughs> and, uh, and this is their nose, and this is their tongue, and this is their spinal cord. You see where you are? Okay. And right in the middle of this person's head, and in all of your heads, is this big white stalk of the brain called the brain stem. And the reason why evolutionarily it's moved itself over time into the center of your skull is because you can't live without it. If you damage that, you get all kinds of, uh, of uh, uh, severe disturbances of self, like severe disturbances of consciousness, like coma and persistent vegetative state. And, uh, and if you get damaged, that's up in here. And if you get damaged down in here in the medulla, which is that last little fat bulb of brain before you get to the, the spinal cord, that's literally intermediating between the, the, the rest of the brain and nervous system and the body down here, if you get damaged in here, you die. You can't even be kept alive on life support because your body and your physiological regulation becomes completely dysregulated. Your heart stops beating, you don't breathe, and you just die very rapidly. And we wanted to know when people feel inspired by another person's accomplishments, they tell us that they feel deeply moved and purposeful toward accomplishing some great things with their own life. Do they feel that way because they're literally adjusting the neural substrate of their own consciousness? Are they literally more conscious in these kinds of mind states? as evidenced by activations, not just up at the high-level cortex where you have to do a lot of thinking to be able to understand and interpret the story, but all the way down into those basic systems that we share with alligators. That was the first hypothesis. The other hypothesis, we can see the region better in this slice of the brain, which is cut through somebody's head this way. So it's as if we took a slice across this head, like this, right, and turned it up like that so that you're looking here at the front of the person's head at their forehead, and this is the back of their head, and you're slicing right through the middle. And if you look in the sides here, you can see these big C-shaped pieces of cortex folded inside. Those are called the insula. Um, this is a picture from Grey's Anatomy, the, the, the textbook, right, not the TV show. Um, <laughs> Just, just got to be clear, especially when you're talking to this age. Okay, and um, you know, this is, <laughs> this is the eyeball over here, and the neck goes down over here, and somebody's resected away the frontal lobe and the parietal lobe and the temporal lobe, and there's a big naturally occurring fissure right here called the sylvian fissure, where the brain kind of folds on itself. And if you open up that fold and you look inside, there's this huge piece of cortex. What does this piece of cortex do? So it turns out that our first understanding of this cortex is by a guy named Wilder Penfield, who was a famous neurosurgeon back in the 1950s, before we had neuroimaging. And he did resection surgeries for people with intractable epileptic seizures. And what he would do is basically, so these are people who are having seizures that are completely disrupting their life, and they want to have the piece of brain tissue that's starting the seizure removed so that the seizures stop. Um, and so what he would do is he would put people to sleep under anesthesia and open up their head and then wake them back up again, basically. And you can't feel anybody poking around your brain because there's no sensory receptors in there. And so then he would sort of poke around and ask the person what they were experiencing or what they were doing. And as a, as a way to sort of localize 
the, 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 the functionality of that person's brain, because everybody's brain is a little bit different. It's kind of like your face. You know, you got two eyes and a nose and a mouth and a certain configuration, but boy, if I wanted to do cornea surgery on you, I would really want to look, be looking at your eye, not just usually where the eye is, right? Okay, so that's basically what he was doing. And in doing so, he actually provided over many patients the first functional maps of how the brain was organized in living awake people. Not dead cadavers, but actually people who could say, oh, you're touching my foot now. Oh, and now I feel somebody tickling my knee. Oh, and now it's going up my leg. Well, now it's at my hip, right? And you can map the whole leg in the brain, and he did. So what happened when Dr. Penfield poked around over here in the, in the dorsal anterior insula? The person vomited or got other kinds of gastromotoric responses that I won't really go into in polite company, right? And what he realized is that this cortex is literally visceral motor sensory cortex. It's the part of your brain that feels and maps your guts and viscera. It tells you when you've got a stomach ache, it tells you when you've eaten bad food, it makes you puke if you poke it. You know, poets and artists have for millennia talked about how when they feel deep emotions about situations with moral connotations or with emotional or relationship connotations, right, they feel those things on the substrate of their own guts. People talk about a heart fluttering with love or like a rock in the pit of their stomach or one young man in my experiment talks about a balloon in his chest expanding up and out as he hears about these inspirational people. And we wanted to know, do people literally play out their moral feelings on the substrate of their guts? So think about the title of the talk again here. You've got a brain that's controlling the body. You've got a mind that's interpreting the world. And on top of that, you've got cultural meaning that's literally co-opting the embodied brain. So basically what we found, this is a map in orange of all the places where there was reliably more blood flowing when people fed they, said they felt really inspired on the one hand or really compassionate, depending on the story, compared to when they were reacting to other true stories that were interesting but not as emotion provoking, which unbeknownst to them were mixed in throughout the experiment. And they said they weren't feeling very emotional about it. And what do we have? We basically have the first demonstration that our moral, social, emotional ability to feel the repercussions of the things we infer. Think about how abstract that is, right? Is still co-opting basic systems that keep your body alive. These are, this is the hypothalamus up in here. This is like involved in sort of tasting the chemistry of your blood, makes you know when you're thirsty and all that kind of stuff. All the way down, these are the nuclei that are part of the mesencephalon, right, that are involved in various kinds of jobs to keep you conscious. You get damaged there, you get coma, or persistent vegetative state, and other kinds of syndromes like that, where the person really doesn't have a full psychological self anymore in the true sense. All the way down, this is the bottom of the field of view of the scanner all the way down into the medulla. You get damage here. We can't even keep you alive on life support. How fundamentally does that speak to our interconnectedness as humans, to the role of our education in allowing us to think about complex issues that have culturally appropriate meaning? 
these things are not sort of riding above while the rest of our body just kind of goes along doing its thing. They feel motivational to us, I would argue, because they're literally hooking themselves into these biological survival mechanisms that we share with alligators. And you look over here. These are the insula, the anterior insula. You poke here, the person pukes. When people feel compassion or inspired, there's massive activation in the part of their brain that controls and feels their guts. And what we basically demonstrated, I think, is that emotions and primitive drives that undergird emotions, like, like sex and hunger and things like that, are there to keep you alive. We knew that. We've known that since William James and, and before. But among humans, survival and wellness are now no longer just attached to the physical survival of your body. We crave the complex sociality that allows us to make meaning. We literally have attached our, our survival as an organism to our values, to our ways of understanding and making meaning out of the things that happen, to the emotions that we have about other people, to the value that we bring to those situations. These are for the people in education again, just a little demonstration. This is a little second grade girl. I asked her, can I please have your paper when I saw this, right? Little girl in second grade who was reacting to this story called the, the, uh, the Empty Pot. And it's a story about um, you know, the emperor who uh, wants to choose the next person who's going to be groomed to be the emperor. And he gives every kid a, a flower seed to grow. And whoever kid grows the most beautiful flower gets to be chosen to be the emperor. And of course, he secretly cooked the seeds so that they couldn't grow. And all the kids went and found a different seed when they realized they wouldn't grow. And they grew a beautiful big flower. And one little kid shows up and says, well, my flower didn't grow. I guess I'm just the loser who you know, can't grow anything. And of course, he's the one who gets chosen to be the emperor, right? Second grade story. I kind of ruined it for you, but anyway. <laughs> what lesson can be learned from the story of the empty pot? You can learn that you should always be honest. Very nice. Suppose someone caught you trying to be dishonest. How would you feel? I would feel shivery and ashamed of myself. Right? Who taught this little eight-year-old that your social standing, what other people believe about your qualities of mind, matters because it co-ops the homeostatic regulatory systems that regulate the temperature of your physiology. That's what shivering is actually for, right? This is how human beings learn. This is why relationships and the feeling one's own self within those relationships is the fundamental substrate of uh, disciplinary knowledge or literary you know, meaning-making in this case. So the basic idea here is that emotional feeling states recruit the neural systems that map internal body states. And we had another finding, which I haven't told you about yet, but which I think is really important for education especially, for development especially. And that is up in here in the so-called default mode network. I know some of you have been reading my paper, Rest is Not Idleness. I kind of borrowed the John Lubbock poem for a, 
for a title, which is about, which it was a jumping off point from this finding, okay? Basically, what do we know about these systems that are massively activated as people are experiencing these emotions? These systems are recruiting a set of brain regions whose activity is fundamentally incompatible with task orientation or attentional focus into the world. Here, let me tell you a little bit about how we discovered these systems. So the first, ours was actually one of the first functional experiments that activated these systems. Usually they're suppressed in activity whenever you're thinking about anything in a scanner. There, was a, there is a guy named Marcus Rakel, a brilliant neuroscientist, who in 2001 did a very, very clever experiment with his colleagues. He, he noticed that everybody has this newfangled neuroimaging technology at that point where people are studying, you know, what happens in the brain when you're processing this, that, and the other thing. You know, when you do math problems, when you read things, when you listen to foreign languages, when you look at porn, whatever, right? They were giving all kinds of things to people and watching what happened in their brain. And he came along and thought, what if we put people in the scanner and ask them to just do nothing? Think about nothing. Just relax in there. Clear your mind. He thought he was going to discover the so-called default state of the brain. And what happened was very weird at first, very hard to understand at first. What happened was that, well, so first of all, let me say, in order, just like in my experiment, you have to have a control condition to compare against, right? Because you're not just looking at the neural activity that happens, you're looking at what happens in contrast to what happens in some other condition that you think is different in some fundamental way. That's sort of how we design the science experiments. So he needed a condition that would be really hard and really effortful where people were totally mentally engaged and concentrating to be able to do it as his control condition. So we used the psychologist NBAC task. If you know what this thing is, it's this nasty thing where basically they, they um, give you a, a running stream of pictures or words or whatever it is and you need to watch them and then tell you know, two or three back whenever there's a, a, a repeat that happened three times ago, right? And it's constantly updating because now three times ago is four times ago, so you have to keep, right? So it's extremely difficult to do, and when people do it, they have to completely give it their 100% focus. And that was his control condition. And what he found is that when people were just relaxing and resting in the scanner and thinking about nothing, they had massive activations in these center core regions of the brain and, and two characteristic lateral regions now too. These are among the most metabolically expensive tissues in the entire body. This tissue in here, per unit area, uses more oxygen and glucose in a, in a, in a unit time than your leg muscles tissue is using in the middle of running a marathon. All to think about nothing. Right? <laughs> what we now know is that if you put someone in the scanner and you ask them to think about nothing, what do you do? You go in there for a minute, you're thinking, oh, I'm thinking about nothing, I'm thinking about nothing, I'm not thinking about anything. And then you start daydreaming, you think, geez, I think it's my grandmother's birthday next week. I wonder if I should get her something. What would she like? Maybe this, oh, is that guy mad at me? I should have said this something. You know, you start thinking about your own personal experiences. You're not reciting the state capitals, right? 
You're thinking about the time when you visited the state capitol or whatever it was, right? You're building experiences in your mind into a coherent narrative, and then you're reflecting upon that narrative and sort of playing it all and all out in alternate scenarios and imagining things that never happened. You know, here's me winning the Olympics, woohoo, you know, whatever it is. And you're daydreaming all these impossible things and reliving memories and thinking about the emotional implications of those things. And keep in mind that you can't do that, duh, you knew this already, when you're attending to the outside world. When you're watching and listening and on task and focusing and digging in on something that needs to get done, you are not also making abstract sort of complex narrative meaning out of what it is you're learning and what it's for and what it means for you in the future and what it means for you now and how it is you're gonna use this. You know, and this led us, this finding and this realization led us to ask questions like these in our subsequent research. What, what does this mean for children who live in urban environments, right? Where you're saying, you live in an unsafe neighborhood, Jose, or Joe, you know, whoever you are. Watch out who's behind you. Don't take your keys out until you know there's nobody following you. Pay attention when you're crossing the street, only when there's a walk light. Don't go when the hand is going, right? And me as an adult now, I can you know, watch the walk light and think about stuff at the same time, but when you're 10, you really can't. And the question is, are we, when we know that our brains are shaped by the ways in which we use them, are we systematically training up or building a generation of kids' brains and young adults' brains, right, that are expecting and tilted towards sort of preferentially built to focus on here and now appearance-oriented, action-oriented stuff as compared to the moral and ethical and narrative and long-term meaning that lies behind the stuff that happens here and now. You know, what does it mean for the way we use technology? Not just children, really, especially for children because their brains are developing so uh, rapidly, but for everyone, really. And we now have accruing evidence that, from my studies and other people's, that the way in which teenagers use technology for social media and things like that is literally related to how those networks are wiring up in their brain and predicts how, um, how they react to stories like the one I showed you, whether they just stick with the here and now and say, well, she's a good person, she did the right thing, I think she's really great, I wish I could help her and drive her truck for her, as compared to like, she inspires me, makes me think what's possible for the world, she overcame tragedy, who else could do that? How could I help someone else do that? Who am I going forward that I've learned something from her? And I'll show you those data in a bit. And these are really questions here that I've kind of put up for the educators in the audience. So for example, this is a study with, uh, this is the NSF five-year longitudinal study of uh, low SES, so poor kids in immigrant families uh, from poor neighborhoods in Los Angeles. And we actually did a, a, you know, a, a series of studies with these kids where we interview them about a whole lot of things. We also expose them to social stories and ask them to react to them in an interview and then again in the scanner. And we're studying the ways in which their social functioning in the world, the kinds of violence they've been exposed to around crime and things like that, the kinds of family relationships they have, um, and, and other kinds of experiences they've had in education, 
are shaping and shaped by their biological and brain development. So we're looking for the connections between those two strands of development to understand how they influence one another. And for example, we interviewed the kids about, you know, we, we, we have a, a whole questionnaire about the kinds of violence they've witnessed. You know, what have you seen? Have you ever seen somebody get shot? Have you ever seen somebody get killed? Have you ever seen somebody get stabbed? Have you ever been stabbed? Have you ever been chased by dangerous people? Blah, 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 right? And then we asked them, to talk to us about how they understand those things that they've witnessed. Why do they think people do those things in their neighborhood? And what could be done to make their neighborhood a better place? If they were in charge, what would they do or what could be done to make people not act like that? How would you have to change the situation? And we can score those answers for their sort of um, abstract and moral and complex quality. Things like, I had one kid tell me, well, it's impossible to stop the violence in my neighborhood. Oh, wait a minute, no, I have an idea. You, you know how you could do it? You could round up all the people who believe in violence and kill them, and then there wouldn't be anybody left who believed in violence, and then the neighborhood wouldn't be like that anymore, right? Okay, low-level answer, right? As compared to a kid who actually has a complex understanding of the sorts of situations that lead people to engage in these kinds of crimes and what you might do to support them in not acting that way. And what we find is that the teenagers who tell us the higher level, more complex answers, when we ask them to just lay in the scanner and rest, actually show more activation in these very same systems. And it also makes sense because we ask them at the end, surprise, tell us everything you were thinking about while you were just laying there for seven minutes with us taking pictures, and they talk about more social, more moral, more planful content. We're ending at about 8.30, is that right? Somebody tell me? A few more minutes? Well, give or take, okay. And I swapped this in because these are college-age kids that we've been studying, young adults, who are reacting to those same stories in our interview, like the woman in the blue dress. And I told you that we have an embodied brain, right? And that the hypotheses that we build come out of the confluence or the mapping of high-level social mental constructs onto systems in the brain whose basic day job is to control bodily functions and keep you alive. Now, what do we know about, hold on a second, what do we know about these parts of the brain up in here especially? It turns out that we know that in primates and in humans too, but we've especially studied it in primates, these systems in here control eye gaze and eye saccades and visual attention shifting, right? So if you stimulate there, the monkey moves its eyes. And if you train it to look over here and look over there, you can see spiking in the center. And there's a whole bunch of research from like the 1970s onward looking at how people naturally sort of spontaneously avert their gaze or kind of roll their eyes back or close their eyes when they're trying to remember things, when they're trying to think about the moral implications of stuff, when they're trying to understand the broader context of something. And I wondered, could it be that there's a sort of an evolutionary story to be told here in which our kids who are able, more able to recruit these regions to build these more complex abstract states of meaning making are co-opting that same brain system via teaching themselves almost, you know, not consciously, but teaching themselves to adopt behavioral patterns that shift them away from the here and now so that they can have a time to reflect and think. 
This is the opposite of having your cell phone dinging at you all the time. It's being able to say, like, wait a minute, let me think about this. Let me, like, not pay attention to what's here and now and instead build a story in my head that helps me to integrate what I've learned across time into who I am. And what we found, and this is among uh, USC university students, right? So very high-functioning uh, participants, all of them, is that, in fact, we see these relationships I'm going to show you a video right now of a young woman reacting to a story meant to inspire her. Um, and I want you to watch, I've got it transcribed here, I want you to watch where she's looking in relation to what she's saying as best you can. So how she makes meaning out of the story and where her gaze is as she is watching and listening about the story and trying to make meaning out of it. So I asked her at the beginning, how does this person's story make you feel? The same question I asked you. And here she goes. I was first starting with the extremely impressed because she's like above and beyond. I think also just respect her for not only helping herself out of her own situation and the main parts of it, but trying to help other situations as well, especially those who are most fortunate. Really, um, like, that's just very motivational too. Okay. Yeah. So I let her think for a while. She doesn't say anything, so. What do you mean by just very motivational? Um, I kind of see reflect upon my own life and realize that, considering that I haven't had this extremely uncontrollable circumstance with a lot of these people, mm -hmm. like, it makes me realize, well, they can do that despite like, whatever hardships they have, mm -hmm. and I definitely should be making more of like, more, like, my resources in my life. Mm -hmm. So the way the experiment ran is the person, you know, the participant sits down with me for two hours as I tell them each of these stories and ask them how each one makes them feel, right? Or now with my postdocs and my students. And then we move them into the MRI scanner and we show them the stories again. And we ask them to push buttons to tell us how they're feeling. And what we found is that, and we also had um, trained uh, research assistants, undergraduate research assistants to, um, uh, uh, we turned off the sound and had them look and rate where the person is looking, right? And we found that young adults who avert their gaze more, who look back and forth away from me and away from the computer as they're making, as they're talking, actually slow their speech more. So we have stories that don't require that kind of abstraction. So admiration for skill, where you see somebody solve a Rubik's Cube blindfolded after memorizing the entire thing or something, right? There's no complex moral lesson there. It's just really cool. And the only way you can figure out what's going on is to stare at her, right? So you watch her and you go, wow, she's so cool, right? You don't need to think, and it makes me think about the meaning of my life. It's just her solving a Rubik's Cube here now, right? So we made intrinsic comparisons, intra-subject comparisons, within the person. And what we find is that people who avert their gaze more in the virtue stories, the stories like the woman with the blue dress, also slow their speech more. They pause, right? And they become inspired more. And they make more sort of worldly, moral, high-level abstract uh, statements about their reactions to the story. These are quotes from university students saying things like, more people in the world should be as dedicated to helping others, right? Or I do believe that if given a second chance, people can change for the better. That's in relation to a guy who was a 
gangbanger and got in jail, and when he got out, he basically started a youth uh, center for the kids in his neighborhood. Or he gives me hope for humanity, right? These kinds of statements are ultimately what we're interested in building students who can come up with. Because what this means is that they've assimilated the whole story and inferred something about what's generally true or learnable from this situation. Not like the lady in the blue dress is a cool lady, but she gives me hope for humanity, right? She teaches me more about what's possible. And what we actually find is that that kind of moralizing behavior and eye gaze is related to the brain in exactly the way we hypothesize. These are brand new data. They're not published yet. Just got them. Um, and, and what we basically find is that so verbal control is how abstractly the person talks about the story. So saying things like, he gives me hope for humanity as compared to, she's a good person. She did the right thing, okay? And what we get is that the more these university students build these high-level verbal controls, the more they're using this part of their brain to think about the stories. And the more they are averting their gaze and rolling their eyes away and closing their eyes and things as they're reacting to the stories, the more they're activating this part of their brain. And what's cool, and I'm sorry this is an ugly picture because it's, it's not published, it's just brand new and hot off the presses, but we actually can show, for those psychologists among you who like statistics, that the level of verbal control, the level at which the person makes meaning out of the story and becomes inspired based on that, is actually related to how much activation we get over here. But it's mediated by how they avert their gaze, which in turn mediates the part of their brain that's controlling eye gaze in monkeys, which in turn is explaining the difference. It suggests there's a kind of a natural co-opting of an evolutionary mechanism for controlling attention that we need to support in educational contexts and experiences for kids. It means that when we overly focus them on task orientation and instrumental getting stuff done, especially in the younger grades, what happens is potentially that we undermine the process of making complex meaning. Okay, so just to wrap up, Emotions are automatic, but we need to learn how to have them. In order to truly appreciate that woman in the blue dress, you need to know a whole lot. And you need to be able to think complexly and critically about what it is you know to be able to figure out what it is that you could learn from her. And so, you know, from the perspective of, of affective and social neuroscience, the purpose of education is to increase young people's abilities to recognize the complexities of situations. You have to notice what's there so that you can develop increasingly nuanced and sophisticated strategies for acting and for responding. This is published in a paper that I have with Antonio Damasio. It's also reprinted in the book if you're interested in that. And like I said, this isn't just for social stuff and emotional stuff. This is uh, Guillermo Brockington, who's a PhD student in my lab from Brazil. He was studying physicists, and what he basically showed in comparing physicists at the postdoctoral level or above, right? So these are people who are physicists for life, uh, compared to mechanical engineers at the postdoctoral level or above, right? And he had little simple um, drawings of things falling out of airplanes and diagrams of objects moving and stuff. And everybody in the experiment knew what's the right way things move and what's just a scientific misconception. But only the physicists 
showed microscopic changes in the polarity of sweat on the bottom of their feet in the millisecond after they saw the thing fall out of the airplane the proper way. Right? It's like, that is my world. That's, that's what I love about the world. It acts like that. And they're literally emotionally connected to that in the same way that they would be if they saw somebody they were in love with. <laughs> For what it's worth. And I'm just going to close with, a, with an excerpt from a poem. I think oftentimes poets, especially because you have such a focus on liberal arts, I'll do this, oftentimes poets and artists teach us as scientists and as society where we need to go, what, what the sort of, what I like to call itchy problems are. They can't give us the data, but they can tell us how it is that we need to be thinking about the things we need to be learning so that we can steer our science in ways that will be relevant for society. And I think that Mr. Kunitz has done that with this poem, for me at least. He was the, the US Poet Laureate twice during his life. The first time wasn't really called that. And he, he lived to be 103 years old. And he wrote this poem, The Layers, when he was 98. And it's a poem about him looking back over his life at age 98 to think about what it means to him to have lived. And I'm just going to share with you the first few lines. He says, I have walked through many lives, some of them my own, and I'm not who I was, though some principle of being abides from which I struggle not to stray. And to me, what he's saying is that you know, the process of living a life isn't sort of separated from your body, from your survival, from the reactions you have that are then felt back by your guts, but it's literally you in a body, in a life, moving through it in a physical embodied way that steers the state of your mind. And doing this, you don't have to limit yourself to just one life. You can for a little while live in the life of that woman in the blue dress, or maybe you probably have many lives that you're already living, one with your family and one with your school and one with your friends, right? We build alternate kinds of cultural spheres for ourselves and in essence live many lives that way by creating different frames for making meaning. And doing this, oops, sorry, doing this changes you. I'm not who I was, though, you know, that orange, increase in activation at the bottom of your medulla, at the very essence of the base of your survival-related homeostasis, remains. Um, this is just to remind me to say that uh, we have the book signing after this, but that um, I, I am not making any profits off the book. I'm donating all of the money, if there is any, um, to educational causes. Um, just want you to know that, and thank you. And one other thing I can say, this is um, a link to uh, a paper that describes my cross-cultural work, the first report of differences in how neural activity corresponds to experience in Chinese students and American students and Asian American students in the middle and all these interesting things. Um, so it's, a, it's in a journal that has free access, so you can just take a picture of that and like, download the paper for free if you're interested. Yeah, thanks. So I'll, students, you get the first crack. I'll let you think about those questions and, and line up or come over here and while you're doing that, because I'd like you to use the mic. Uh, thinking, coming, right. I, so I, but I'm gonna ask the first question. So sure. um, as a liberal arts institution, we're in the midst of thinking about curriculum, 
uh, what we can do to be better at all of these things. You've given us a lot of to think about. You know, as academics, we tend to think about curriculum and courses. Um, it strikes to me that you know one of the things I've been thinking about is well you know if the brain needs time to think we should space the courses further apart which of course we try to cram them all together because it's efficient for classes but what we need is a, a half an hour nap in between each class <laughs> yeah. um, or meditation rooms right we should not have yeah. classes as close together um, what are some of the other kinds of impl um, implications of this research for as we think about um, our institution and what what higher ed should look like what else should we be thinking about well, I mean, I'd love to know what you all think about that question, too. Um, I would say that we need to understand, and I think at this level, I'm sort of preaching to the choir, but I'm speaking here also to people who are going to be teachers and educators for younger kids, where we really don't value this in our society very much, nearly enough. What we really need is to provide structured, supported um, opportunities for young people to make meaning out of the things that they notice in the world and to discuss and to have ways of displaying their understanding. I can show you some examples of how kids do that if you're interested or I can do it tomorrow in the classes I'm visiting. Um, but what I think it means is that rather than sort of trotting out answers to stuff, I mean you do have to know the answers to stuff and be able to solve stuff, otherwise you don't have the skills to be able to think that'll, you know, at a level that allows you to appreciate the equation as beautiful, right? But what we really need to do is embed the skill development within the context of meaning making explicitly. And so we need to be making, helping make people make connections between what it is you're learning how to do and what it is that means for you or what it enables in terms of your thought processes or what kinds of meaning it allows you to make out of the physical world, out of the scientific world, out of you know, the mathematical world, out of literature, that kind of thing. So you know, we kind of, good liberal arts colleges already do this pretty well. Um, but, uh, but many of our more traditional kinds of educational institutions really don't, where we expect people to sort of trot out the answers and that proves you knew something. And if you don't know it next week, it doesn't matter because you were able to trot it out last week, right? Instead of really building, so building an educational experience where uh, students are building over time and, and revisiting topics in deeper ways and from multifaceted ways of thinking about them so that they can make a more complex meaning over time and become expert at something by the time they graduate. And it doesn't matter if the thing you're becoming expert in ends up being the field you end up going into in the long run. What really matters is that, I mean, it's more efficient that way, but you don't have to do that. What it matters is that you've had the opportunity to choose something that you're interested in that seems meaningful to you and purposeful and interesting so that you can really engage it with all your might and build the most complex kind of nuanced emotional understanding of it that you can. Really try to make it mean something to you. Which is a... A, a, a real advertisement for, in some ways, to follow your passion as an undergraduate, do the thing that you love, and it doesn't matter if you end up not doing it in your life and your career because you're you're building that. You're system building skills for you will for loving things, right? And that's yeah. that's not obvious. How many people talk to me in their 40s and 50s and say, "How do you find even and and young kids too? How do you find your passion, right?" How do you know what you're passionate about? I don't know what I'm passionate about, right? Which is incredibly sad to me because what it means is you haven't had the, the opportunity to put in the effort to find out. And, and make no mistake, it's hugely effortful to discover a passion, right? It doesn't plop in your lap. But at the same time, it comes from experiences that are facilitating and giving you supported, structured ways of consciously making meaning out of the things you're learning. And in building mental habits of mind for doing that, you come to explore things that over time evolve into passions.
great because it's become sort of a cliche, cliche in higher education to find your passion, but um, you've, you've given us you know, biological reasons why this is a, uh, a, good, a good way to exercise your brain and to develop um, you know, neural pathways or right. things, things that you actually need. Right. Um, great. Questions? Okay. I will come to you. That's all right. Hi. First, I want to thank you for coming. You, um, I really enjoyed your speech. That was really, really interesting. Um, I just wanted to ask a question about one of the findings that you had up on your presentation. Um, you said, feeling emotions about others' minds engaged brain areas related to sensing and regulating the body and consciousness. Yeah. I just want to know if you think that has any connection to the sort of findings that are being found now about mirror neurons? Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, so... First of all, there's a chapter in there about mirror neurons, in case you're interested in that. But you can also get all the chapters just as isolated papers if you have, if you, have um, you know, the, the subscriptions to the journal. So you don't have to buy the book to get it. Um, but the, the basic idea behind mirror neurons is that they're sort of a basic entry point into sociality by allowing us to conjure mental representations of another person's actions and goals behind those actions so that you can sort of engage in sharing their goal with them. So the thing about mirror neurons is they don't do anything. First of all, they're not a special class of neurons. The, the, guy, the people who have discovered them think they are, but there's many people who think they aren't. And we've never found a neuron that actually is different or looks different. They're special by virtue of the way in which they're wired up. They're wired up so that they connect both to um, actions representation, so like the systems of your brain that allow you to move your body, right, and to perceptual representation, so the systems of your brain that allow you to notice back what happened, basically, when you acted in particular ways. And out of those feedback loops, these neurons are mediating those feedback loops between actions and representations, and I think of this in a very Piagetian way, in case anybody knows who he is, um, that out of that emerges the goals. Right? Because goals are really about acting in ways to produce outcomes and then wanting and desiring an outcome and acting in order to produce it again. And so what they're finding with mirror neurons is that those systems for, for motoric representation and for sensing, which are the same ones that you use yourself, they're not special systems, are actually activated only when you're engaging with another person's actions whose goal you know of something about. If you don't understand why they're doing what they're doing and it just seems like a random action, you don't actually engage mirror systems at all. And even in monkeys who don't have experience, for example, with, um, there was an example with ripping paper, right? So monkeys who watch other people rip paper, when the monkey has had a chance in its life to play with paper and rip it, it shows mirror neuron activity when it's watching a, a film of a person ripping papers. But if it's never played with papers itself, it doesn't show any activity. Right. So the thing about mirror neurons is that they're a basic way for us to engage in inferring the goal of another person. And to be able to do that, you have to have some experience with that way of thinking. And so what it really means is that as teachers and as educators, we need to make our goals really transparent and sort of model the processes by which we think about things so that we can in turn um, share them and teach other people to kind of think about them the way we do as to kind of bootstrap them into mirroring our thoughts and then building from there. So mirror neurons are kind of a basic entry point. They're not, um, they're really not found in the systems I talked to you about tonight. 
because those systems are, are by, by their very essence, not about perceiving other people's immediate goal, like the woman holding up the book and turning the page, right, would activate motor, mirror neurons for turning pages, but that's not really what her story's about. It's not about how she turns the page, it's about who she is over the cumulative of lifetime of experiences. And so what I really think we need to do is kind of be able to engage here and now, but just like my last slide said, also notice when there's something bigger to be inferred that you actually can't see. And that means sort of disengaging from those neurons and thinking about the meaning behind stuff. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. First of all, Thank you so much for coming and blessing our college with this wonderful discussion. I'm, I'm very, very grateful. Also, I think it's wonderful to figure out how the brain and the heart are so interly connected in the human self because I feel like to a certain degree there's still kind of this subtle but not really put into belief of, oh, the brain and the heart don't coexist in the same sphere of thinking, while in fact this proves that they do. Right. It's just having access to this knowledge changes everything person would think about that. But I'm also kind of wondering to, to what extent is there kind of a movement or shift in education to have this knowledge be put into maybe secondary education, especially with regards to how true and influential learning is associated with emotion? So in, this is just kind of asking to your own understanding, to what extent is that sort of being pushed down, not just in higher education, but in secondary education? Yeah. That's a great question, and I think it, it matters hugely the quality of the education and of the people who are designing it. So there is an awful lot of, um, of, of, of uh, schools that uh, don't believe in this at all, right? This kind of no excuses model where, I mean, I, there aren't excuses, but that's not what you should be focusing on, right? I mean, the idea is that, you know, we're, we're actually focusing people on their actions here and now instead of on the broad way in which they construct meaning and connect things to themselves in the context of cultural feelings and relationships. There are, of course, really fantastic schools around the world that do take these ideas very seriously and have built them brilliantly into their curricula. And they usually have things like uh, sort of um, project-oriented focuses or uh, students are encouraged to give a lot of uh, to, to teach each other and to have talks where they present their expertise in an area and the work that they've done as a sort of portfolio and then they receive feedback and they revisit it. These kinds of activities really teach high school kids um, and younger kids, right, to examine their own knowledge and to build expertise within a sphere and to actually take responsibility for the things that they're creating, at, you know, out of their skills. Um, and uh, there's an awful lot of, uh, of, of examples in education where we um, specifically design policies that directly undermine the neural and the psychological uh, uh, um, functioning that, that, that supports these kinds of meaning making. So for example, this, I, was, I, I took this out, um, but I can show you something that I've got in here. Um, this is a letter that was written by a little boy in third grade about, and he was writing to teachers, really to his teacher, but about um, the behavior chart in the back of his classroom, right? 
And I talked to this boy about it, and, and he said that he, he had never been, you know these things, so it's got like red, yellow, green, like if you're, if you're behaving well or if you're not behaving well, and then, and then if you're really bad, then we call your parents. And I, I never could understand why you don't call their parents when you behave really well. But anyway, and, and you know what I mean? So you're moving up and down. So I talked to this boy about it, and, and he assured me that he had never been off green. Like he's an extremely well-behaved boy. It's not that he is in trouble and doesn't like that. It's that the behavior chart in third grade is personally insulting to him as a learner. He feels like, I mean, this is a kid who's used to thinking about stuff, and he feels like it's impinging on his, um, his ability to think and contribute to the classroom in a broader way than just behaving appropriately, right? And it's sort of insulting. So this is the letter that he wrote. Um, he, he actually has an orthographic disability, so he doesn't spell well, but this is what he wrote. Every day starts off new, but, let me read from here. When I step in the classroom, I see dot, 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 the bad behavior chart, which isn't a bad behavior chart, it's just a behavior chart, but he takes it as a bad behavior chart. Every single day, this fact has always bothered me and makes me feel like the expectations of me are low. In fact, I almost feel like the teacher is daring me to talk or do something bad. <laughs> it's also like she wants me to test her limits. All of this really makes me uncomfortable especially when I feel that my expectations are low. Sincerely, right? We, and this teacher's just trying to manage the behavior in her classroom using a technique that she's taught to use in education schools, right? But what does it do? It immediately takes the, the conversation from what kind of thinker are you, what kind of person are you, to did you behave appropriately? Check, right? It completely diminishes the, the expectations of great thinking on the part of the student. And this student noticed that, right? And it's as if, it's as if you know, the teacher came in and, and the principal says, oh, Miss Jones, you look very nice today. You're professionally dressed, you're on time, and you're using an appropriate mode of voice to your class. You get a star on your mailbox, right? I mean, it's insulting. She's thinking, Miss Jones, I hope, you know, I hope my professional knowledge is greater than just knowing how to wear in a professional outfit and show up on time, right? I'm actually here because I know something, right? And so I think we're specifically taking kids, we do this in elementary school, but we do it all the way through high school. And we're pulling them back down to the ground in ways that undermine, directly undermine their ability to think bravely and courageously about broad ideas because it's, it's, it's directly um, criticized, right? We're pulling them back down to actions and not letting, exposing them to big ideas and letting them engage with those ideas in a genuine way. We got one more? You can do it. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. I am a student. <laughs> I also taught for um, 20 years in the public schools. Um, and so a lot of what you said resonates with me in a kind of different way. I'm currently taking a class in um, character education. And so um, putting your talk in the context of that, um, do you feel like a character education program that builds character and connects kids with the emotions, I'm going to cry, would help them? learn uh, better and develop more higher level thinking in the classroom and also um, making them more comfortable would help them increase their focus and and learn more um, 
I mean, I think like seeing those parts of the brain yeah. light up with emotion kind of says that when they're emotional, they are absorbing more. That's right. So the thing about emo, yeah, you're, like you're totally right, right? It depends what age, right? This all has to be age appropriate too, but the thing about emotions is you really want the kids to strongly feel emotions in school, but you want them to feel the ones that are relevant to the ideas and skills they're learning. So if they're feeling a lot of emotions about things that aren't relevant to the actual conceptual knowledge and skills that they're learning, right, the, the emotions are relevant to the, to, the, to the behavior chart, and the emotions are relevant um, to, the, to the grade they got, right? Those emotions aren't actually guiding the knowledge development. And that's why emotions get a bad rap, and emotion regulation is all the thing, is because you're thinking, and not that you don't need to be emotionally regulated, of course you do, but what you want is kids who, not who can put their emotions aside, who, but who can actually feel emotions about math or about history, right? Who genuinely get engaged with the content at any age, all the way from you know, preschool, all the way up through you know, post-secondary. What you really want is emotions that are about the content material. And what we do in these kinds of situations is we're shifting kids' emotions so that emotions are only things you have about each other in relationships, which is only a tiny slice of what emotions actually are. Or emotions are about um, the, the outside forces that we slap on top of kids that aren't actually intrinsic to the domain thinking that we're trying to build an appreciation for and an emotional love of. So, for example, well, so put it this way. The brain is, is built smartly, evolutionarily, it's built not, physically not to be able to remember things about which you have no emotion. If you have no emotion about something, your brain doesn't notice it and doesn't remember it. Conversely, you remember the things you were emotional about. And think about like the memories you have from school. And you'll know what I mean. Like, what do I remember from third grade? I remember this one project I did, right? Because I really like loved that thing, right? And other stuff. And other stuff I don't remember at all, right? So here's the thing. When you say, well, that can't be true, right? Because I've, there's lots of things my students learn or I've learned through that I have absolutely no emotion about, and I managed to make myself learn it. That's because the system comes along and slaps on these external things that make you have emotion about it. You have no emotion about math. You don't care about it at all. You can't engage with it to, even just to appreciate it in a way that somebody else could love, why they would love it then we better come along and give you grades and give you, you know, detentions and extra stuff so that we can say, hey, you know, you, now you're gonna have some emotion about how you do on this thing, right? <laughs> so dig in, right? But the problem with that is your brain remembers what it was emotional about. You remember the grades, you remember the worry, you develop math anxiety, you remember the, right? You remember how people weren't proud of you or you had detention to do the extra homework or whatever it was. You don't remember actually engaging in a math problem that inspired you or that interested you or that made you appreciate the beauty of that kind of thinking for explaining the world. So we're drowning out the emotions that matter by slapping on all these huge emotions with, that are to do with extrinsic rewards and punishments. And you know, a little bit of those sometimes can kind of steer you or jolt you into paying attention, but the real emotional drive has to come from you engaging with the concepts and the skills, so that they become things that you can actually appreciate and understand and feel passionate about. Yeah, does that make sense? Well, I'm pretty confident that everyone here has learned something and felt something and <laughs> been inspired. 
Thanks. And that's not something everyone was probably expecting uh, from what uh, was billed as a lecture on neuroscience. Um, but you have done all those things tonight. We thank you for enriching our community. Please help me thank our guest, Dr. Mordino Yang. Thank you. Hey, you're welcome. And I thank you and remind you there are some books here for sale. Uh, and we'll be back here uh, February 23rd for the next in our series. Thanks very much for coming.